Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The New Statesman. Hi, it's Anoush. And Armando. And we just wanted to let you know before you listen to this series that we actually recorded it during Liz Truss's short-lived premiership. Yes, which actually means uh, that if you hear this, it's it's very, very valuable, I think. Yes. Yeah. It's a piece of history. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's so rare. Something was made during that tenure. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. In this episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Dominic Waters, social worker and campaigner against food insecurity, and Adrian Buller, director of research at the think tank Commonwealth. We ask how we can make the economy work for everyone. Now, Armando, the UK is a really unequal country, the income gap in the UK is the largest it's been in 10 years. So now we live in a world where food bank use has almost doubled since 2014. Nearly a third of low income families are unable to heat their home. Meanwhile, the richest 1% of households in the UK are worth around £3.6 million each. So that tells you that something's broken. Something is broken. And and as you're saying, it's getting worse. And it's an issue, I think, that's just driven the last... I mean, the last year of politics has not been about, yes, there's been a war in Ukraine. Yes, there's been the pandemic. But I think beneath it all is the current food crisis, the current energy crisis, the spending crisis. And an awareness, I think, now across all parties that there is a huge crisis of inequality that has to be dealt with. We've been recording these podcasts over a period of time. When we started out, we didn't know who the next prime minister was going to be. As we're recording this one, we're now in a case where the solution to inequality is trickle-down economics. And I think I'm not the only one who's just thought, you know, if someone says to you, I'm really hungry, you don't say, well, in about three or four years' time, if we go for growth, there'll be a period where (laughs) there'll be a, a greater investment in infrastructure that will consequentially benefit. You say... (laughs) <laughs> Would you like something to eat? And, you know, if politics is about anything, it's about how, how do we survive? How do we get through the day? And I think this is an issue that's frustrated, annoyed, angered everyone, perplexed everyone. But what these podcasts are about are, are talking to people who hopefully are able to provide us with 
where there are solutions. Now, I'm pleased that we're joined by two very special guests. Joining us today is Dominic Waters, a newly qualified social worker and campaigner against food insecurity, drawing on his lived experience of poverty. He is a Food Foundation ambassador and author of Social Distance in Social Work, COVID Capsule One, which seeks to understand the impact of the pandemic through the lenses of poverty, culture and class. In November 2021, he launched the Food is Care campaign, calling for urgent action from the government and local authorities to address food insecurity and poverty. He is currently working to raise awareness of the snobbery and contempt people experience through the narrative of the undeserving poor. And Adrian Buller is the Director of Research at Commonwealth, a progressive London-based think tank focused on building a democratic economy. She's the author of The Value of a Whale, which examines the illusions of green capitalism and co-author of Owning the Future, which is about power and property in an age of crisis. And... Uh, Adrian and Dominic, thank you both for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Dominic, I want to start with you because you have sort of gone on a journey in recent months from sort of trying to live and survive and get a job, training to be a social worker, and now you've got a job in, in that sector, raising awareness of how difficult it's been to even afford food for you and your daughter at times. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience and also why you've decided to try and bring it into the public sphere? Yeah, it has been a bit of a journey so I'm a single dad. I live in a um, council estate block in the Garden of England in Kent with my amazing daughter. And I've been on child benefit, universal credit, free school meals for my daughter and the vouchers during the holidays, thanks to the work of Marcus Rashford mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the Food Foundation. And also we've always had pay-as-you-go gas and electric meter, which comes with its own lack of access to fuel because mm-hmm. the shop in my estate so it only sells the lowest quality of food produce and there's no facility to top up your gas and electric key mm-hmm. so that's why i note that it's both a food and a fuel desert in the garden of england mm. that draws on the point you uh, anush was making right at the start that you know we have so much wealth and resources and yet somehow we're not able to draw on them yeah right right on your doorstep and i think it also speaks to like barriers in the way of social mobility Mm -hmm. and also the impact it has on your well-being and Mm -hmm. like your ability to engage in society because when your electrics on emergency you don't want the fridge to run out in the middle of the night then the freezer all the food that you had for your child isn't going to be good probably by the morning you can't have a shower you can't boil your kettle And especially when my daughter was younger and that happened, unfortunately, quite regularly, just to do with financial limitations. And it's fine saying, oh, well, you should have planned for it. Mm -hmm. But if you just literally don't have the money, then, Mm -hmm. like, no amount of planning is going to kind of... And also, once you're in the cycle of thinking just day by day, you can't pause that to think, oh, I'll I'll strategize the next year. Yeah. You know, you've just got the next 24 hours to negotiate, really. For real, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's these kind of considerations, I think, our politicians, well, some of our politicians don't necessarily seem to understand. So you had Jake Berry, who is chair of the Conservative Party, recently saying, if your fuel costs are going up, then just get a higher paid job. Mm. You know, and then you also have some MPs suggesting... Well, that's what I've done, but... (laughs) There we go, a vindication for... I'm yet to be paid. So just to say, I'm yet to be paid. And one of the holes in universal credit that 
There's many. Mm. It's a dehumanizing system. It's mm. broken, and I could and I will speak more about <laughs> it. But one thing I just found out. So I just got a job, but I ha- obviously haven't been paid, and I'm applying for the petrol travel to work help. And she said, "Yeah, well, you have to supply this." I didn't have an email that I could show her then and there, and you get twenty five p a mile. I don't think that's in line with the cost of petrol.、Mm. Yeah. So I think that that needs to be reviewed because if supposedly these state mechanisms are meant to be promoting people climbing、yeah. the ladder or whatever,、yeah. so to speak, that's not achieving that. Like they haven't even responded to my request. So, when did you make that decision to go into social work to start the whole process of training? It's quite a, a long story, but just in terms of social work. I didn't have the finances to do anything, and it was only when my daughter was older that I could start thinking about a career for me. Because before, like, I'd have to be at the primary school gates, so you couldn't really study, and you know, and yeah, yeah, especially yeah. when you're living in poverty, it's it's not like you've got an au pair or <laughs> or or things like that. Those sort of safety nets that other people with different statuses enjoy. But yeah, social work. It was. I could get a bursary to study it. That was one of the reasons. But once I started, it has been the most, on so many levels. Like even my own identity, I was always like silenced by snobbery. I wouldn't be able to have this conversation now, three four years ago. I think people need to remember food insecurity wasn't a term that was discussed. It wasn't in the public sphere. Maybe in the U.S. and Canada,、mm-hmm. but two years, three years ago, before Marcus Rashford, it wasn't discussed,、mm-hmm. and that goes along with fuel poverty. But yeah, so social work it's it's helped me like learn the language of how to express. The inequalities that I experience as a single dad. And you say it's a sort of it's like a kind of straitjacket. It's not just about not being able to afford certain things, but there's a psychological constraint put on you. You're made to feel less about yourself. And a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's、yeah. where it, it, the impact is so broad in terms of your ability to engage in society, sustain relationships, be confident in the world, and also your physical and mental just well-being. When I was working with children in care, actually, and this was just before COVID, my first placement was with children in care, and I saw how they had a lack of access to nutrition,、mm. and I would, as the social work student, I was often tasked with taking them to the local food bank. They relied on the food bank and like donations、mm. of like nearly past its sell-by date food from local businesses. And on a Thursday, we got a delivery from Greg's Bakery, and that was like the choice most wanted picks because you don't have to cook, <laughs> you know. It was,、yeah. it was like the the wanted food. And then, but I noticed how the the key workers were using that food,、uh, the Greg's Bakery bits, as like a behaviour controlling mechanism. So, if residents or young people in care. If they'd gone against the rules of the scheme that week, like they'd come back past ten, or they'd, I don't know, done something else, then they weren't allowed access to that Greg's bakery produce. And then when I'd go home, I, I kind of like internalised how, like, I faced the same lack of access to nutrition that the、uh, young people in care were experiencing. And I did a bit of research, and that's when I came across. 
the concept of food insecurity mm. and kind of why it so resonated yeah. with me yeah. and mm. my daughter's situation. And I've gone on to kind of highlight that I, I would strongly suggest, and through my experiences, even in professional spaces, the contempt towards a voice of poverty, even in a forward thinking well, profession. I mean, even is in, the, there. in the last week, we're recording this, you know, it's sort of first couple of weeks in October, after the crash caused by Kwasi Kwarteng's <laughs> mini budget. The next thing that was suggested was cuts to benefits or really or not mm-hmm. as if the problem behind the, the economy was the welfare budget. And it absolutely infuriates me. I mean, this has been going for like 10, 20, 30 years. This natural default from economists and politicians to go towards the welfare sector rather than there's 10 times more business fraud than there is benefit yeah. fraud. Yeah. 20 times even, I think. And yet you don't get politicians saying we must have to go after tax fraud and business fraud. There were billions written off in the in the loan scheme during COVID, you know, loans mm-hmm. to businesses that were fraudulent, but which the Treasury or Inland Revenue have said, we just, we just can't get it back. And I just wonder if there's just, is there just a huge blindness uh, or lack of awareness of how this is a mismatch of priorities, really. I, I, I can't even be as generous as to say I think it's a lack of awareness. I think it's a very willful and deliberate blindness, right? And it's baked into every part of our system, right? So the healthiest type of food tends to be more expensive. You know, you pay a penalty for having a prepay meter of energy. Your unit cost tends to be higher than if you have a tariff. And so we've just, in into every possible system that supports the basics of life, we've baked in this kind of hostility towards poverty and hostility towards the working class and no one bats an eye at the fact that you know people working 40 hours a week mm-hmm. still require benefits just to survive yeah. that is not this idea of people being like scroungers which is despicable and absolutely untrue that is fundamentally a problem with the system in which you live if you can be working full-time more than full-time and still barely afford to live I'm really grateful for you both raising that and it's something that I've tried to with my writing and thinking tried to look at and it is this unfortunate element that I think We have in English, maybe I'm saying it wrong, British culture, but definitely English I um, speak to, of this contempt and undeserving Mm -hmm. way of thinking about people that are poor. And it's okay. It's their fault. Yeah, it's okay for them to be hungry because they're poor. Yes, yes. You know, they're a single parent because they're poor. Mm -hmm. And it's something that needs to be discussed more. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to be here to kind of even like approach these sort of topics because it's something that is so ingrained that it really does need combating on a lot of levels. And are we being efficient with our resources? You've written that uh, a lot of our energy, the national grid, for example, isn't actually ours. (laughs) No, no. The way that our energy system operates is fundamentally irrational, right? So the UK really sets a global standard for just irrational privatization of all the systems that kind of support our ability to live. And energy is like really the top top of the pile for that. So, you know, every aspect of our energy system, from the way it's generated to how it's transmitted by the national grid, it's called the national grid. It's a publicly listed company with lots of international shareholders to the suppliers and kind of every element is 
privately owned is in theory meant to be regulated, but broadly is adding huge markups and costs at every stage that has you know real impacts on people's lives. I mean, we've done a lot of research at Commonwealth on the energy system, and you know between 2011 and 2010, the big six suppliers paid out you know close to 23 billion pounds in in dividends to their shareholders, even as you know energy prices consistently rose. And the same goes for the national grid or this element that a lot of people don't think about or know of, which is the sort of more local distribution networks. Mm -hmm. They effectively get to operate as regulated monopolies, but they have the highest profit margin of any sector of the UK economy. Not just the highest margins within the energy system, but the entire UK economy. You know, we're talking profit margins north of forty percent, and that's just charging people for ownership of an asset that used to be public. Mm. And so we've organized this entire system around profitability in a way that is clearly failing. As of September of this year, there are I think eleven million households reporting that they were behind on their bills, and five million reporting that they were skipping meals to pay for their energy bills. That is an indefensible system. We're not doing the basics in terms of just delivering the fundamentals of life to millions of people. I think we need to be asking very serious questions. Uh, yeah, Dominic, you were saying you you live in the Garden of England, and yet the food that you have access to is like always the the low quality. Low quality. Yeah, and just on the fuel thing, so. We were, and it's been spoken about quite widely, that people who are often the most disadvantaged and vulnerable families in society are on pay-as-you-go gas and electric. We were told by the government yeah. we'd get a voucher on or about the first of October to top up your gas and electric. Still hasn't arrived, and what were we, the twelfth or yeah. mid mid October? And it's getting colder. Yeah, and so the fact that these issues are more broadly spoken about. It kind of resonates with those points around an approach to poor people as being undeserving. Like that's a categorical error and failure. Well, g- given we, you know, to use that terrible phrase, we are where we are, and yeah. we have the government we have. You know, if you were, if you had access to the government, God. what would you want to most persuade them about in terms of perception and priorities? trickle-down economics is a lie that never has worked and never will. I don't know. It seems a good place to start. You know, cutting corporation tax has statistically like no correlation with economic growth. There are huge studies of meta-analyses that basically show there's just no relationship between those things. And yet we're forging ahead as if that is inevitably going to be the case. The same goes for cutting taxes on the wealthiest. That does nothing to build a more kind of thriving economy. You know, the UK, even before this package, had some of the kind of lowest tax rates for corporations within the OECD. And despite that, some of the lowest rates of business investment, some of the most kind of stagnating wages. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, I think, has punched this huge hole in the public budgets that now is leading to, and this is the, the big fear of the moment, is, you know, austerity yeah. round two, this new spending plan for absolutely decimating an already kind of vulnerable public sector. Uh, and Dominic, if you had like a day with a cabinet minister, what would you want to <laughs> show them, tell them, implore them? I've got a whole 24 hours. You've got a whole 24 yeah. <laughs> I would want them to kind of recognise that poor people have been in a cost of living crisis long before the phrase was popularised and that it's only now that these price rises are impacting middle and upper classes that is getting this sort of attention i've got a campaign called food is care one of our objectives is so my daughter's on free school meals 
and there's great work being done by at the moment i think it's called feed the future for free school meals to be extended to everyone on universal credit but as someone whose child is actually on free school meals they're not free my daughter often texts me when she's at school saying dad i haven't got any money left on my farm so a kid gets three pounds a day to spend on food and drink if they're on free school meals. So I wouldn't just say that they need to be extended. I would say that the amount each child is given a day is increased in line with inflation mm. or, or the rising cost of food because the amount of food you could get your child for three pounds at the beginning of COVID isn't the same amount of food yeah. as you can get your kid today and that also speaks to like the work of Marcus Rashford it was amazing we got vouchers you know during the recent summer holidays and the Easter or whatever but that works out at £2.14p a day for your kid when that's stretched over the week I hope you can imagine that that doesn't feed your child nutritiously and it also speaks to these the MP I think his name was Lee Anderson saying like you can feed your family for 30p like I can see on my gas and electric meter just to you know to cook chicken boil rice pasta whatever it is and I like cooking for my amazing daughter but it costs more than 30p just to do that let alone the ingredients and the use of the food bank and my cooker from the local homeless charity and you know the windows that don't shut you're putting your gas and electric on you know the blocks in a bit of a mess and you know the bins outside that don't get collected and you can smell in the morning for weeks so what would I do? I would get the MP. Is, was it an MP I get? It was an MP. Okay, I'll take him. government minister. I'll take him around my council estate <laughs> and then... And cook, cook them one of your amazing meals. Yeah, cook, <laughs> yeah, to try and persuade and them. And say to this make didn't them. cost thirty p. <laughs> yeah, this cost five pound fifteen. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd probably do that. Well, I really wanted to ask you a bit about that—the way that the government seems to get in the way of you trying to live your life. Because while they've deemed that bankers need uncapped bonuses to incentivise them to work harder. There was part of the mini budget that has gone quite uncovered, which was they're going to force some universal credit claimants to spend six hours longer a week actively job seeking or face sanctions. So why is it that there are these cuts built into welfare and also these other punishments like you were talking about the school vouchers not going up with inflation that actually get in the way of you living your life and yeah. doing your job rather than incentivizing you to work harder? Yeah. Is that how it feels? A hundred percent. The challenges you have, just to speak personally, even when I started studying, so living in poverty as a single parent, like you'd feel like you couldn't even vocalise the struggles you were going f through in your classroom. And the person next to you might have been going through similar things, but because of that impact, that the powers that be view you in a certain undeserving way, that it kind of silenced you. So definitely, like, snobbery has silenced the poor for too long. And in terms of, t like, time, I hear my neighbours speaking about... And some of my neighbours are, you know, perhaps older and less mobile than I am, which had a massive impact during COVID and they could only use the shop in the estate. But they're, like, spend their day going to different supermarkets mm -hmm. that maybe, like, have a mm -hmm. special deal on this, I don't know, on rice or whatever it is and spend their time on the buses going to different ones for you know their tea or their milk or whatever it is and it doesn't feel like in i think it's the sixth 
richest country in the yeah. world that mm-hmm. really people should be experiencing that sort of inequality. No, I'm glad you mentioned that actually because Adrian, I saw you tweeting um, a piece from the FT that actually described yeah. Britain as a poor society just with some very, with some rich, very people rich people living people. in it. Can yeah. you explain a bit about about that vision of Britain because it's not, I think, how we like to see ourselves. Yeah, no, it's absolutely not. Yeah, when we use statistics like we're the sixth wealthiest economy in the world, I think that we all use those and it completely skirts over how profoundly unequal that distribution is, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it, it was just a perfect phrasing from John Byrne Murdoch of a poor country broadly with living standards for the vast majority of the population that are below the average for, and I'll use this in scare quotes, the developed world, right? Far below what the average is for most of our kind of peer countries, whereas the top 10% of our society is above average and having a, a grand old time. And I think it's really important to focus on that distribution rather than the fact that, you know, our GDP is a certain level. Because frankly, GDP doesn't mean anything until you know how it's distributed, until you know what it's producing. How is that delivering for people's lives, for their well-being, for their health, for planetary health, etc. Just to focus on that figure obscures basically everything that matters. And one of the trends I've noticed recently is that it's it's not the usual suspects who've been saying we've got to do something about this. It is now on mm. the Tory backbenchers. It's the IMF of all people. Have we reached the point where actually people are waking up to the fact that actually inequality is bad for an economy? That actually the more unequal a society is, the less that society can grow. I mean, I hope so. I mean, there are some whisperings of that, I guess. Um, you know, the evidence that lower levels of inequality are good for, for health, for productivity, for everything that sort of mainstream economists say they care about. That's years in the making. It's it's very clear. And I guess people, you know, because conditions now are so extreme are maybe beginning to awaken to that. I think it's a tragedy that conditions have to become as extreme as they are for this to be even on the table. But unfortunately, it feels as though the people who currently are pulling all the levers of power are sort of continuing to willfully ignore that case, right? This idea of growing the pie as the objective. It doesn't really matter if you grow the pie if the people at the very top get even more of it and you end up with less if you're at the bottom. So I just, I think, unfortunately, people in, in power haven't yet. Plus, kind you know, of, you've got to be able to afford to cook that pie. Well, exactly. That's what you know. I tweeted the other day. Liz Truss is so insensitive talking about growing a pie when, you know, the poor don't have the money for the meat and veg or to top up the gas and cook it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We painted a pretty kind of honest but bleak picture of where we are now. In the remaining time we have, are, are there any solutions, any suggestions, any positive ways out of this that we can suggest? I would say that, so I'll just contextualise it. I had a little bit of a very small platform and I was getting asked to write little pieces for social work blogs and stuff and I was often getting asked to speak about my lived experience of poverty or council estates or my lived experience of food in insecurity and I'll be sitting in my council flat and I'll be writing the blogs and I'll be so grateful that oh my god someone wants to see my writing or whatever but then I started thinking that this isn't my lived experience this is my living experience Mm -hmm. and that's a concept that I developed in my first book thank you for mentioning Mm -hmm. so that brings me to what I would ask the government or if we had the choice to Mm -hmm. is that the government needs a poverty minister or department Mm -hmm. they've got all these ministers for this for that but 
poverty has been neglected for so long mm. and I would suggest that it needs to be someone with living experience of poverty mm. so they can speak to the state mechanisms and they've experienced how the, the, the intersecting inequalities from housing to food insecurity to fuel deserts so that and that could be like an integral part of forming approaches to policy mm. and if it's okay to say with food is care i want through my research the idea of welfare and well-being which well-being being in the care act and welfare and well-being being in the children's act 1989 needs to be legally redefined to include food insecurity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so achieving food security for the most disadvantaged would then have a state duty mm -hmm. to to do that. So that's something I'm really trying to yeah, campaign. It's pretty amazing on. that there's no state duty already to make sure that people can eat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a sort of state duty to keep debt a kind of percentage of GDP. There's a duty imposed on the Bank of England to keep inflation within us. Mm. But yeah, you're right. There isn't, you know, something that's so consequential and has such mm. a kind of pervasive effect on not just the economic health but our general health. Yeah. There isn't actually a system in government that measures it and tries to identify whether we're actually reaching it or, or not. And if we look at how we're protected through the Human Rights Act, you know, yes. we're protected mm -hmm. from torture, yes. we're protected from all these different things. You're not protected from poverty. Yes. And mm -hmm. that's something that speaks to that kind of snobbery and idea of people being undeserving. Yeah. And yeah. have you detected any sort of positive signs in, in, in anything <laughs> uh, government always, or opposition? I suppose, the question. Yeah, out. there are a lot of kind of policy solutions that are just like floating around, whether that's proposals around a minimum income floor. So complete reform to the kind of benefit system we have to make sure that, you know, at all times people have almost like a thermostat that goes up and down to make sure that you always have enough to live or whether that's. A return of some kind of public ownership in the energy system. The kind mm -hmm. of seeds of that are present in what came out of Great British Energy and, and the Labour Conference, although there's a lot more to that package, I think, that would be needed to really hit energy bills. There are all sorts of ideas floating around that do give me kind of inspiration and hope. What I would say is, you know, it's unlikely that those things will be heard and realised until, you know, we have people like Dominic kind of front and centre, basically speaking about what it's actually like to be on the sharp end of those things. It's very easy and you know, I work in a think tank. I'm obviously guilty of this. It's very easy to drop big statistics and walk around with like, here's my great policy proposal. And for people to ignore that, right? Because we're completely marginalizing the just harsh reality of everyday life on the sharp end of these very cruel systems. The other thing I would say that gives me actual genuine hope broadly has been the kind of huge resurgence of the trade union movement in the UK over the past few months. And I think one of the biggest kind of strategic points for all of us who care about these issues is to be, you know, unwaveringly supportive of, you know, rank and file union membership, supportive of strikes and to hugely resist as, as much as we can Truss's plans to basically kind of debilitate unions even further, whether that's stricter rules around strike action, etc. You know, that's something that needs to be, I think, strongly resisted because union action benefits not just those in unions, but absolutely everybody else. It is one of those rare moments where it's a kind of lifts all boats phenomenon. <laughs> mm. And I did want to ask you, because you hinted at it, whether or not a Labour government would be the answer. And I think we're allowed to talk about the prospects of a Labour <laughs> 
Labour government now, finally, um, <laughs> that they're sort of 30 points ahead in some polls. But, you know, they're talking a lot about growth. It was Keir Starmer mm. who first said growth, growth, growth. And he started using the language of the magic money tree, which is, of course, <laughs> what David Cameron and George Osborne used to accuse Labour of using when they were trying to make cuts to public spending. I mean, is that just a sort of rhetorical stance or is it worrying that they are taking the Conservative framing of the economy? Obviously, if they do get into power, they'll be inheriting some pretty tricky public finances. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do think that the adoption of the framing, not just around how the public finances work, but also a lot of the framings around benefits and around benefit fraud, you know, the fact that that's being adopted by, you know, MPs and Labour Party, hugely problematic. Some of their framing around migrants, around the police crime and sentencing bill. I think there are lots of elements within the current Labour Party that are cause for concern. I do think, however, that there has been sort of a bit of a door opened with what came out of this Labour conference where, you know, for the first time we really heard some kind of policy vision. And I think things like Great British Energy or the National Wealth Fund, while kind of small on their own, have created a a wedge moment where we can really push on some of these issues, which I guess is encouraging. I try to be optimistic. I don't know, that's what we wanted. And and Dominic, I'd love to have your views on the sort of politics of this. You know, do you look to an alternative party in government for help or is it not how you see your your experience? Mm, I heard about like the Labour pushing more towards that public ownership and stuff. And I think that would be something I'd be supportive of. But I was just thinking, it's probably a bit off topic, but around social work and, you know, how social workers are, at the end of the day, they're an arm of of the government and yeah. our professional standards come from the Department for Education, Social Work England and the British Association of Social Work. And at present, even though those... So just to share a, a vital um, statistic of a study by... Professor Paul Bywaters, is that you're 10 times more likely if you're living in a deprived area to have a social worker involved in the raising of your child than if you live in the more affluent areas of our country. So just with that established, the social work professional standards and guidance, it gives a nod to poverty at present, but it doesn't include um, food insecurity or fuel poverty, which I would say speaks to like the distance that the people that make this Mm. guidance enjoy from the daily realities of poverty Mm. so part of the work that i'm doing and something i would suggest that the government could get behind who knows is that food insecurity and the realities of that and as we've spoken about the impacts of that needs to be um discussed and included in the professional standards for social workers Mm -hmm. because just to re-highlight that you know, social workers are tasked with dealing with some of the most vulnerable um, yeah. people in our society. So again, approach. it's the point of the distance between those who are trying to run things and trying to change things with the actual reality that someone like you has been shining a light on in this discussion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and the barriers I've met have been like, there is a, a level of like dismissing a voice from poverty that I've experienced in that goes against, you know, professional values and ethics Yes, so. it's, it's you know, it's on the one hand, they say, you know, everyone should have a right to this, everyone should have an opportunity, access to educational opportunities. And so and on the other hand, people being stigmatized by their background, and which goes against the kind of the whole ethos of um, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm so glad that we had you on. Thank you, Thank you so very much, much, both Thank of you. you. Thank, it was Thank a great you. Discussion. Thank it's you so much. much.
Well, that was really interesting, yeah. especially what Dominic was saying about there not being enough people making the decisions who understand. Absolutely. What like we have an equalities minister. We have a, a minister for the north. I mean, yeah. you know, we have all these genre ministers. <laughs> and yet, you know, the biggest thing of the lot, income inequality. Mm. Did we even have a levelling up minister who you think would be? But I think that post has now gone it unfilled. means different things it to different government. Um, <laughs> it, it's a huge thing. You know, it struck me that we do these podcasts in the New Statesman's offices in Hatton Garden. We're surrounded by, by diamonds. diamonds. Literally. Yeah. And what Dominic was saying about how our resources are all out there. And yet, for some reason, we're not distributing them fairly enough. Adrian was saying all the statistics and plans and things are out there showing that wealth inequality actually is bad for the economy. And I did think, have we stressed that enough? You know, are people aware of that? Should we be doing more to kind of outline what effect it has on the economy and why actually it makes good economic sense yes. to reduce wealth inequality? Maybe we're just assuming that people know this and, and that it's blindingly obvious, but maybe actually we haven't done enough to articulate that. Well, yes, clearly the sort of moral uh, failings of the situation aren't, aren't enough to get through to the government that we have at the moment. So mm. maybe that argument about how it actually holds back growth yes. would be more productive. Exactly. And actually, you know, what Adrian was saying about us basically being a poor society with a few rich people living in it, mm. that's bad for growth. Because if you say, if you put universal credit up, which this government mm. is very reluctant to do, then those people will spend their money. Whereas if you give more money to the rich, then they save it or they put it in assets and it doesn't trickle down as is supposed to yes. be the way. Yes. And actually, Adrian mentioned that we don't compare well to some so-called developing countries. I, I was looking this up and the average UK household is actually... 20% worse off than its equivalent in northwestern Europe. But even in Eastern Europe, some countries are pulling away from us. So the average Slovenian household will be better off than its British counterpart by 2024. No offence to Slovenia, but that's not something that I think sort of British politicians would necessarily want to be the case. But that's where we're heading. Thanks so much, Armando. Thanks. And Anoush, what are we discussing next? We're going to be talking about US politics and if the UK is just following its lead with John Stewart and broadcaster Sam Walker. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.